Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Not a passage that I would choose to preach if I were to just be able to have the choice if I'm going to just pick out a passage that's unrelated to what we have been studying recently. It's not a passage I would normally choose to preach. It brings up things that are unpleasant to think about. But we are committed to go through whole books of the Bible. You know, if we just pick and choose the passages that we're going to preach, or the passages that we're going to read in our personal devotions, uh, we will be very malnourished. We need the whole counsel of God. And in, t- in order to interpret a passage correctly, we need to know its context. And, and so the most, most healthy way for us as a church uh, to, to uh, study the Word of God is to go through whole books of the Bible. That way, whenever, whatever passage you're in, you know the previous context, you understand the flow of thought, the mind of God in this book. We need the whole counsel of God. We need the pleasant portions and the unpleasant portions. God has deemed this passage important for us. That's why He placed it in Scripture. Some of the most important things are some of the most unpleasant to think about. And it would not be good for us to only study pleasant passages. Let us look at this passage together. I'm going to read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-5. through 5. Please stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. Verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. This passage teaches us as a church to excommunicate members who are in sin and will not repent. We're going to see in this passage, first of all, a rebuke for not excommunicating an unrepentant sinning member. Second, we will see the authority to excommunicate an unrepentant sinning member. Thirdly, a command to execute an unrepentant sinning member. And finally, the purpose of excommunicating an unrepentant sinning member. So first the rebuke, then the authority, then the command, then the purpose. First of all, the rebuke. Look with me at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Paul says there is sexual immorality 
among you. What is sexual immorality? It is a term that we see a good number of times in Scripture. Sexual immorality is any kind of sexual intercourse outside of a legitimate marriage between one man and one woman. Marriage is between one man and one woman. According to Scripture, God is the one who has instituted Scripture. Sexual immorality is any kind of sexual intercourse outside of a legitimate marriage between one man and one woman. An example of an illegitimate marriage would be a quote-unquote marriage between a man and another man. Now that would not be a marriage in God's sight. Our society might call it a marriage. That would be an illegitimate marriage. Sexual immorality is a perversion of God's good design. God created sexuality as a good thing to be exercised in only one context between a man and a woman who are married. Any sexual involvement outside of that is sexual immorality. It's a perversion of God's good design. And God's word prohibits sexual immorality in all of its forms. Now the Apostle Paul brings up a case of sexual immorality being committed by one of the Corinthian church's members. Paul says, this man has his father's wife. We would call this woman the man's stepmother. A man has his stepmother. Now we do not know what happened to the man's father, whether he divorced the stepmother or the, the, the husband died, we don't, we don't know. But somehow, the father is no longer with the stepmother. And now this member of the church is living in a sexual relationship with his stepmother, who apparently is not a member of the church because Paul says nothing about removing her, only about removing him. In other words, this member of the church is in an incestuous relationship. This is incest. A form of sexual immorality. This is a clear transgression of God's law. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus is the third book in the Bible. It is part of what we call the law. Because in the first five books, we have the law that God gave through Moses. Leviticus chapter 18 prohibits incest. I want you to see what the Bible says about this. Right now, our culture says incest is wrong. Our culture might not say that a decade from now. Leviticus 18, look at verse 7. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. Prohibiting a sexual relationship with one's father's wife. Go down to verse 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25. This is after a list of various incestuous relationships. They're all prohibited. Verse 24, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, 
For by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. The Canaanites were a wicked people. And God judged the Canaanites uh, through Israel by beginning to destroy them and to cast them out of the land of Canaan. It was God's judgment upon them for their wickedness. We read in the law of various forms of wickedness that the Canaanites engaged in. Here we read that incest was one of the forms of wickedness amongst the Canaanites. The Canaanites were being cast out of the land under God's judgment for their wickedness, including incest. And Israel was called to be separate from the world. To be holy as God is holy. And part of that is being holy in one's sexual relationship. And so, incest was clearly prohibited in Scripture. If you go down to verse 29, For everyone who does any of these abominations... So incest is referred to as an abomination. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. The punishment under the Mosaic law for incest was death. Capital punishment. In this way, being cut off from the nation. Go forward to chapter 20 in Leviticus. Chapter 20, verse 11. This is repeated in God's law using different terms. Here in verse 11, If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So it wasn't just a matter of something for Israel, but this is God's moral standard for all people in all times. And Israel was called to follow that standard of God, His righteous standard, and the penalty for not doing so would be death. This is serious. No matter if the culture approves of such behavior or not, this man in the Corinthian church that Paul mentions is in sin and he needs to repent. And repentance would include ending the relationship. Ending the incestuous relationship. You can come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What makes this situation in the Corinthian church especially shocking is that this kind of relationship, Paul says, is not tolerated even among pagans. That an incestuous relationship is not even tolerated among pagans, yet it's in the church. Sexual immorality was almost universally approved in Greco-Roman culture. Corinth was known for such sexual behavior, for such what the Bible would call sexual perversion. And an ancient Roman writer expressed the, the Corinthian culture when he wrote, quote, "Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children." What an abomination in God's sight. That was acceptable in Greco-Roman culture. That was acceptable in Corinth. 
Yet the Romans, including those in Corinth, did not tolerate incest. There was like the one form of sexual immorality that they did not tolerate. However, the one form of sexual immorality that pagans do not tolerate, the church was tolerating. Now, now we do not know how this man who was a member of the church, we do not know how he tried to justify his incestuous relationship with his mother-in-law. Sometimes Christians say they know that what they are doing is sin, but they're going to keep doing it anyway. But usually, Christians who are in sin try to justify their sin. We don't know how this man justified his sin, but it is irrelevant how he tried to justify himself. Paul says in verse 2 to the Corinthian church, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Or the New American Standard, You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. The idea You ought to mourn over this. And if you mourn over this, you're going to remove him from your midst. We see here that the congregation in Corinth knows of the sexual and moral relationship of one of its members. Yet they have not mourned over it, nor have they removed this member from the church. And that is what really shocks the apostle. And this is what is even more grievous than the sexual immorality itself. Because it involves the whole congregation. The apostle tells the congregation, you are arrogant. I want you to look at what else the apostle rebukes them for. Go down to verse 6. Verse 6, Paul says, your boasting is not good. It's a combination of arrogance and boasting. Now, Paul has previously mentioned this church's arrogance and boasting. I want you to look back at what he previously said about them being arrogant. Go back to chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, there's arrogance, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? They're puffed up in favor of one against another. You go down further in chapter 4 to verse 18. Verse 18, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. And now in our text, the Apostle Paul says in verse 2, And you are arrogant. He, he could mean that in spite of failing to remove the unrepentant member who was in sin, they are arrogant. More likely, he means they are arrogant about not removing this member. Now, their arrogance, their refusal to remove this sinning member seems to be a result of the Corinthian church embracing the wisdom of the world. 
We have seen this uh, throughout chapters 1 through 4. The Corinthian church was enamored with the wisdom of the world. They were adding human wisdom to God's wisdom. And the world's wisdom will make a person and a church worldly. The sort of thing that we see here is a result of embracing the world's wisdom. And we see the same sort of thing today in Andy Stanley's church. It's called North Point Community Church. It's located in Atlanta. Uh, This church, pastored by Andy Stanley, is leading a conference later this week called Unconditional. And the website for the conference says, quote, This two-day premiere event is for parents of LGBTQ plus children and for ministry leaders looking to discover ways to support parents and LGBTQ plus children in their churches. Then, what do you find out about the speakers in this conference? Two of the speakers are in what the world calls same-sex marriages. Speakers chosen by this church to speak in a conference in the church about supporting LGBTQ plus children. That's following the world's wisdom. And the world's wisdom will make a person and a church worldly, not holy. In our text, the Apostle Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for arrogantly allowing the unrepentant, sexually immoral man to continue in the church. Paul says in verse 2, Ought you not rather to mourn? You see, when we know of sin in our midst, we are to mourn over the offense that sin is to our holy God. We ought to have godly grief over that sin, whether it's our own sin or it's sin in our midst. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, we'll talk about godly grief over sin as opposed to worldly grief over sin. We ought to have a a godly grief, a God-centered grief over sin. A grief over sin because of the, the offense that it is to our holy God who is worthy of the highest worship and praise. We ought to have a grief that moves us to deal with the sin in the way that God instructs. Whether that sin is in our own life or that sin is in our midst. God is holy, as the the, the theme of our worship service has been. As we have been singing, as, as we have seen in God's Word, God is holy. That He is holy means that He is set apart and above all of His creation. That there is an aspect of His holiness that we call His holiness of majesty, and there's an aspect of His holiness that we call His holiness of purity. As a holy God, He's absolutely pure. He's morally pure, with, with, with no taint of, of unrighteousness, no taint of evil in the least. And as a holy God, He hates what is sinful. As a holy God, He hates what is wicked. As a holy God, He hates what is unrighteous. God is holy. Christ is holy. 
And the church that is known by God's name and known by Christ's name is to be holy as well. Go back to chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. Let's see how Paul addressed the church in Corinth. It pertains to what we're seeing right now. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul said, To the church of God. That's what the church is. It's the church of God. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. It's His church. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. To be sanctified is to be set apart unto God. Is to be, be made holy. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Those set apart from sin, set apart from the world, unto the Lord Jesus Christ. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called to be holy ones, ones that are set apart unto the Lord. Called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The church that is known by God's name and known by Christ's name is to be holy. So when known sin in the church is not dealt with, God's name is blasphemed. Christ's name is blasphemed. And it has always been this way with God's people. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 17 through 23, emphasizes that Israel profaned the Lord's holy name with their violence and idolatry. That they profaned His holy name among the nations. When known sin is not dealt with in the church, being that the church bears God's name and Christ's name, God's name is blasphemed. Christ's name is blasphemed. And further, when known sin in the church is not dealt with, the gospel of Christ is discredited. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. With these wonderful gospel truths here, we read, And because of Him, that's because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of salvation in Christ for the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a gospel, a good news of justification by grace. And what God then begins to do to sanctify His redeemed ones. To make His redeemed ones holy. The gospel tells us that Christ died not just to save us from the wrath of God, but Jesus died to make us holy. And so when known sin in the church is not dealt with, the gospel of Christ is discredited. And so we are to mourn over sin when sin is in our midst. And we are to deal with that sin in the way that God instructs. And in this case, the Apostle Paul says the unrepentant member should have already been removed from the church. 
And the apostle in our text rebukes the church for failing to have removed this member who was unrepentant, continuing in sin. Paul rebukes the church for arrogantly following their own feelings and rationalizations rather than following the revealed will of God. Verse 2 in our text made clear that the church should remove an unrepentant sinning member. And this raises the question, what authority does a church have to do so? And that's what we see in the next section of our text. We see the authority to excommunicate an unrepentant sinning member. Look in 1 Corinthians 5 at verse 3. Verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. In verse 3, the apostle says that he is absent in body, but present in spirit. In context, this means though he is not in Corinth, he has sufficient knowledge of the situation from at least two or three witnesses who have testified to the apostle about the church member's sin and unrepentance. He has knowledge of the situation. He has authority over the church as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not physically present there, but he still has authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ over the church in Corinth. And though he is not physically present there, he can from a distance instruct the church as he does here in these verses. He's not present in body, but it can be said that he is present in spirit. The apostle says here that he has already pronounced judgment on the one who is in the incestuous relationship. Meaning that the apostle Paul has found him to be in sin and determined that he should be removed from the church. That's the judgment that Paul has pronounced. Paul has pronounced this judgment because the church has failed to do so. The the church should have made this judgment. But the church failed to make this judgment. And so the Apostle Paul makes the judgment. Now, you may wonder how this relates to what Paul said back in chapter 4, verse 5, when he said, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. If you don't pay attention to context, this seems like a real contradiction. But when you pay attention to context, you understand there is no contradiction here. In chapter 4, verse 5, when Paul said, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, he was prohibiting the sort of judging that some of the Corinthians were doing when they were judging their their, their different uh, preachers and teachers and so forth. He prohibits judging by worldly standards. That's how the Corinthians were judging. They they weren't judging by the clear standard of the Word of God. They were judging by worldly wisdom. Paul was prohibiting that. And he was prohibiting judging according to any standard. Uh, I'm sorry, he was prohibiting judging things that we cannot see. As he says in that very verse, Do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So that's the kind of judging that Paul was prohibiting. And that's different from the judging that Paul says in our text he has done when he says 
in verse 3, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He could, because this man was in clear violation of Scripture. There were at least two or three witnesses, not only to the fact that this man was living in sin, but that he, not only that he had entered into an incestuous relationship, but that he was continuing in it. No repent, there was no repentance. Clearly a violation of Scripture. Clearly sinful in God's sight. Paul was able to judge. Now the apostle instructs the church to deliver this man to Satan. And we will see later on that this means to excommunicate the man. The apostle instructs them to deliver this man to Satan when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean, assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus? It means assembled, by, uh, assembled to act by His authority and as His representative. Assembled to do what they know to be Christ's will. This is where a local church's authority to excommunicate comes from. It comes from the Lord of the church. This is why Paul says what he does at the end of verse 4, when he says, With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. We read something similar in Jesus' instructions on church discipline. Jesus gave instructions on church discipline in Matthew chapter 28. In verse 20, which is the last verse in that section, after he's given the instructions, which go all the way to, to the level of excommunication, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 24, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus applies that to the church gathering for church discipline. Or the church carrying out church discipline when it's gathered together. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's about Christ's authority, acting as Christ's representatives, carrying out Christ's will in Christ's church. The local church's authority to excommunicate an unrepentant sinning member comes from Christ. Acts 20 verse 28 teaches that the blood of Christ obtained the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 teach that Christ is the head of the church. Christ is in authority over the church. And in Matthew 18, He gave the local church authority to excommunicate. To excommunicate unrepentant sinning members. The Apostle instructs in our text that this authority be exercised when the church is assembled. The Corinthian church should have already known, before Paul writes this, they should have already known Christ's will in the situation that Paul addresses. And now Christ's apostle has made it crystal clear. This is Christ's will. Remove this member. And so now the church is to do it. Paul speaks as Christ's apostle. He's an apostle. He's an official representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's made crystal clear the Lord's will in this situation. Now the church is to carry out Christ's will by Christ's authority. 
As Paul puts it in verse 5, they are to deliver this man to Satan. And this is what we need to look at closely now. We need to look at a command to execute, excommunicate an unrepentant sinning member. Look at verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan. What exactly does that mean? Well, this is what Paul spoke of at the end of verse 2. At the end of verse 2, he said, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is what Paul will speak of in verse 13. The second half of verse 13, Purge the evil person from among you. The way Paul puts it in verse 5, Deliver this one to Satan. Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. Three times. In John 12, John 14, and 16. In that upper room discourse. Three times Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. To deliver a church member to Satan is to put them back out into the world where Satan holds sway over people's lives. Paul uses the same terminology in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20. Paul says, Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So it's not unique here in 1 Corinthians 5 that Paul uses this terminology. He used it elsewhere. Excommunication from the local church, is handing the person over to Satan. It's removing them from the church and putting them back out into the world where Satan holds sway over people's lives. Excommunicating a member includes publicly removing the church's affirmation of the person's salvation. It's the opposite of receiving someone as a member of the church. Church membership is a public affirmation of a person's salvation. Excommunication involves removing the person from membership because you can no longer, as a church, affirm that they give evidence of salvation because now they're walking as if they were an unbeliever. You see, excommunication does not communicate that the person is not saved, but excommunication communicates that the person is living as if they were not saved. Excommunication of a member also includes excluding that person from participating in the Lord's Supper. It includes excluding that person from serving in the church. It includes excluding that person from fellowship with the church. We'll we'll see Paul talk about that later on in this chapter in, 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 I think, two weeks from now. And it possibly includes exclusion of the person from all the church's worship services. Some churches permit attendance at the Sunday worship services, in some cases, for those who have been excommunicated. And this is because unbelievers are welcome at the church's worship services. And it's because a person who has been excommunicated needs to hear God's Word. And it takes wisdom to apply the Bible's teaching to the specific cases a church faces. But this exclusion 
could include exclusion from all the church's worship services. Paul calls excommunication delivering a church member to Satan. The person is removed from fellowship with the local church. Now, when when we are in fellowship with the local church, we are cared for. Our soul is cared for. We, We are edified in fellowship with the local church. We are protected in fellowship with the local church. In excommunication, a person is removed from this and placed back in the world, a place where Satan rules. Now some churches see excommunication of a sinning member as harsh and unloving, and and so they don't practice it. But such thinking fails to truly understand the holiness of God and the holiness of Christ. Because God is holy, He hates sin and is set apart from it. God's holiness is expressed in Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. The greatest commandment is to love God with all of your being. And one who loves God will love what God loves and will hate what God hates. If you love God, you will hate what offends God. And we can only love people properly if we first love God. If we first love the Holy One. The purposes of excommunication are first to uphold the holiness of God and of Christ by maintaining the holiness of the church who is called by His name. And secondly, the purpose of excommunication is to turn the member who is in sin away from his reckless path back to Christ. You see, true love is holy. A holy love does not accept Wickedness. A holy love hates sin. True love is holy. When a member hard-heartedly continues in their sin, refusing to repent, the most loving thing that we can do is to excommunicate them from the local church. Just as the most loving thing that a parent can do for a disobedient child is to discipline the child. And this becomes clear in the last part of our text, where we see the purpose of excommunicating an unrepentant, sinning member. I want you to observe, in verse 5 of our text, the stated end purpose of excommunication. Verse 5, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the time of Christ's return. As the church, we're looking forward to the day of the Lord. The New Testament teaches that the believer was saved when they first believed, and the believer will be saved when Christ returns. 
Listen to how Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 through 28 speak of how believers will be saved when Christ returns. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. It speaks of a future salvation at the time of Christ's return. Similarly, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So as believers in Christ, we look forward to a salvation that will be revealed when Christ returns. After Christ returns, He will send the wicked to eternal punishment, but He will gather believers to be with Him in glory. Believers will be transformed on that day and will enter the fullness of eternal life. Transformed fully into the image of Christ, not just in spirit, but also in the resurrection body. The Bible speaks of this as a future salvation. And this is what verse 5 has in mind. Look at verse 5 again. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So his spirit will be saved on that day when Jesus comes again. So he will receive future salvation. So this is the end purpose of excommunicating an unrepentant sinning member that they would be saved on that day when Jesus comes again, on that day when all believers will be saved. The Corinthian church previously received this man as a believer, likely at his baptism. But now, this member is living as if he is not a true believer. Because the Bible teaches that when you are saved, you receive the Holy Spirit. You receive a new nature. And the Holy Spirit begins a work of transforming you to be like Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit makes you sensitive to sin. He convicts you of sin. Because you have a new heart from the Holy Spirit, you hate sin. Because you have a new heart from God, you have a desire to do what pleases God, not to do what offends Him. And so this man who continues in his sin without repentance, he's living as if he's not a true believer. All believers sin, but when we sin we should be convicted. We should confess it. We should repent of it and submit to Christ. This man was living as if he were not a true believer. A concern that is expressed in excommunication is what will happen to this person's soul in the day of the Lord. We excommunicate because we are concerned for the soul of this individual. What will happen on that day when Jesus comes again? Will this individual be gathered together with all the redeemed to be with the Lord forever? Or will this individual be sent into eternal damnation? That's the concern. 
The church's concern should be that everyone who is a member of the church would persevere in the faith and be saved in the day of the Lord. That should be our concern. A true believer perseveres in the faith. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. The book of Hebrews chapter 3. We'll start at verse 12. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If you profess faith in Christ, but you don't hold our original confidence firm to the end, you don't persevere in the faith, that shows you never really were saved. It was just words that came from your mouth professing faith, but there was no inward reality to match those words. One who is truly saved by God will persevere to the end. They'll persevere in the faith. And so when you have a member of the church who's in sin and unrepentant and they continue, this is our concern. We know if they're a genuine believer, they're not going to stay like this. If they stay like this all the way to the end of their life, that would show they're not saved. We're concerned. This is serious. Just praying a prayer does not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is an act of the Holy Spirit in giving you new life. Jesus said, unless one is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless God in His grace and His mercy removes your heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh and puts His Spirit within you, you have no place in the kingdom of God. This is serious. We're not saved by saying certain words. What must one do to be be saved? They must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is saving faith? It is a repentant faith. One must be born of the Spirit. One must be converted. There must be a, a, a turning of the whole person from sin to Christ that results from that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, if one is is saved. Our text says in verse 5 that the purpose of excommunication is, quote, so that His Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The purpose is that this one would not perish. The Corinthian church member who was in this incestuous relationship was choosing sin over Christ. And if he stays in this condition for the rest of his life, serving sin rather than Christ, what will this reveal about his standing with God? It will reveal he has no right standing with God. That instead of being in Christ, he's still in trespasses and sins. Understand it's very dangerous 
to refuse to repent. When you are in sin, and you are that, that sin is confronted by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and through brothers and sisters, through the church, it is very dangerous to refuse to repent. There's a hardening of the heart that will just increase apart from the grace of Christ. Excommunication is a rescue mission. Excommunication is not judicial punishment. It's not retributive punishment. Well, you did this. This is We're going to give you what, what the law demands. We're not going to it's not about giving you what you deserve for your sin. No. Excommunication is a rescue mission. This one who calls Jesus Lord and Savior, who we have seen in the past to be our brother or sister in Christ, they are walking a reckless path. And if they continue on this path the rest of their life, they will suffer eternal Damnation. It's a rescue mission. Now observe what Paul states in the middle of verse 5. I have to come back to 1 Corinthians 5. The middle of verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that... His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What comes there in the middle is for the destruction of the flesh. Here the flesh does not mean the physical body, as sometimes the word flesh does in the Bible. But here it takes on another common meaning in the Bible. For the destruction of the flesh is for the destruction of what is fleshly in him. You know, as, as a Christian... There's a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is who we were before we were saved. It's our old self. It's who we are apart from Christ's saving work in us. In sanctification, we experience this conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh and we are to exhibit the fruit of the spirit and put on those perfections of Christ. Paul, here, in verse 5, he says, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It's for the destruction of what is fleshly in him. The normal means for the destruction of what is fleshly in a believer includes fellowship with the church. In, in sanctification, we are putting to death what is fleshly in us. Colossians 3.5 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We gather with the church in order that what is fleshly in us would be killed, would be put to death, would be destroyed. That our, our sins would be put off and replaced with obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. The normal means for the destruction of what is fleshly in us is what we receive when we are in fellowship with the local church, receiving the ministry of, of the Word, and so forth. But when a church member is in sin, 
and has closed their heart to the normal means of being sanctified, the church has no choice but to remove them from the church, putting them back into the world, that they would be brought to their senses, and that they would repent of their fleshly living. Think about the parable that Jesus tells of the lost son, the prodigal son. He turned away from the father. He rebelled against the father. He dishonored the father, and he went into a far land. And there, outside of the reach of his father's care and protection and provision, he was brought to the end of himself. He was brought to his senses. He said, let me go back to my father. That's this destruction of the flesh, that the spirit would be saved on the day of Christ Jesus taking them out of the fellowship of the church, putting them back out into the world where Satan rules, that they would be brought to their senses, that there would be repentance for what is fleshly in them, and that they might return in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. The aim of excommunication is repentance. We excommunicate so that a person will be brought to repentance. Excommunication is not meant to be permanent. If the person truly repents, then they are to be restored into fellowship, restored into membership. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1a instructs us, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's our aim in church discipline. We want to be able to restore the individual in a spirit of gentleness. And what must happen if they're going to be restored? They must repent. That's the aim. Repentance followed by restoration. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is a place where the Apostle Paul instructs the church to do this very thing with an individual who had been excommunicated. They were brought to repentance. They, 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 they were brought to having a godly sorrow over their sin that led to a, a change in behavior. And so in 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul instructs the church to receive this one back into fellowship, to forgive him, to restore him. That's the aim. That's what we desire. That's what we pray for in church discipline. Well, this morning, you're in either one of two different places. Either you are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, or you are in Christ. You are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Either on the one hand you are unsaved, or you are saved. What we have studied today in Scripture has been telling us that God is holy. And that God requires us to be holy. We saw that in Leviticus chapter 18, or I'm sorry, chapter 19, the scripture reading earlier today. You therefore be holy as I am holy. It's a fundamental requirement of God. He's made us in His image. He has created us to reflect Him. All human beings have been made in the image of God. 
But the image has been, been severely tarnished by our unholiness. We haven't reflected God as we ought to reflect God. Instead, we have lived in rebellion against God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal death, eternal judgment in the lake of fire. A place of eternal conscious punishment. That's what we deserve for our sin because God is holy. His law is holy. He requires us righteously to follow His law. And instead of following His law, we have transgressed His law. Just think of the different times that your conscience has told you that you've done something wrong. That wasn't, well, you just wronged another person. That was, you've wronged your Creator. You've offended the one in whose image you were created. You have offended the one who is holy, 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 under whose law you live. All of us, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, all of us need salvation. We saw at the end of this passage, the goal of excommunication is that their spirit would be saved on the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ came the first time to save sinners. When He comes again, He's going to, to judge the living and the dead. But He came first to save sinners. He came to save sinners by laying down His life as in the atoning sacrifice for sinners. Because God is holy, He cannot just look at you and your sin and say, Okay, I forgive you. I'm going to remember your sin no more. God, as a holy and just God, He can't just forgive sin like that. He can't just wipe it out. He is just. He is gracious. He is merciful. He is forgiving. But not in a way that violates His justice. And so the only way for a holy God to forgive and save sinners is through the provision of a substitute who would suffer the penalty that we deserve for our sin. Suffer that penalty in our place. And that's exactly what God has done in sending Jesus. The gospel is the good news of Christ and Him crucified. The gospel is the good news of how Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, how He was buried and how He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The Bible says that when Jesus voluntarily, in obedience to the Father, went to the cross, that He bore the sins of His people. He bore the guilt of His people. He paid for that sin in full, saying at the end there, it is finished. The work of atonement, of paying for sin, was complete. He breathed his last. He yielded his, his spirit up. His body was put in that grave. His body was raised on the third day. The Father declaring that this one is the Son of God, just as He had proclaimed Himself to be. This is the Son of God incarnate. And through the resurrection, the Father declared that He had accepted the Son's sacrifice for sinners. And through the resurrection, God declared that this is the one whom He has appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead when He returns. And so Jesus Christ has given us the gospel. He sent the gospel forth through His apostles. 
The gospel has been given to us by divine inspiration in the Bible. And the gospel calls men, women, boys and girls, all people, to turn from your sin, to confess your sin to God, to forsake your sin, to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ, believing that He is the Son of God, believing that He died for your sins upon the cross, believing that He is raised on the third day, and trusting in Him as your Savior from sin, submitting your life to Him as your Lord, to follow Him as your Lord the rest of your days. This is what the Bible calls faith. This is saving faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not saying words. It's in your heart, with your whole person, turning from sin to Jesus Christ. It is resting the full weight of your soul upon Christ and His finished work. Trusting in Christ for a right standing with God. Trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And trusting Him as your Lord. So it's not, I'm going to live my life as I please, as I've done in the past. But I have a new Lord. I have a new Master to now follow. I will go wherever He says to go. I will do whatever He says to do. It's an unconditional surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you, to repent of your sin today and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For us as believers, this reminds us that while we're saved by grace, Christ does require us to live in a certain way. And this is the effect of grace. If we really appreciate the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ towards us, then our heart is changed by that grace. And we want to live in a way that's pleasing to our Lord and Savior. But sometimes we get caught up. We have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Temptation is real. Indwelling sin is real. We still have within us a, a, a bent towards sin that we have to deal with. And so it is easy to get caught up in the deceitfulness of sin. It's easy as a believer to justify sin. It's easy as a believer to justify continuing in sin. But God has done something for our sake that we would not continue down that road of reckless living. He has instituted church discipline. And so we as a church need to be ready to exercise church discipline whenever the need arises. We need to be prepared to remove an unrepentant, sinning member from our church that their, their flesh would be destroyed and that they would be saved on the day of Christ Jesus. We have to be willing to do this.
Now Jesus says what we're to do long before this. He says, if your brother sins against you, or your brother is in sin, go and tell him his wrong in private between the two of you. You're seeking to lead them to repentance. If they repent, it stays there. It's forgiveness. We move forward. We're following Jesus. And so if we're faithful there in that first step with one another, if when others confront us on our sin, we have a teachable heart, a humble heart, to accept that rebuke, if we're willing to, in love, rebuke a brother or sister who is in sin, the Spirit gives us the grace to, to, to deal with sin right away, we don't get to this last step. So seeing this instruction on the last step of church discipline should move us, first of all, to take our own walk with Christ seriously, our own sanctification seriously, and take seriously the sanctification of our brothers and sisters. Let us truly love one another. Let us love one another with a holy love. First loving God, and then loving one another with a love that reflects His holy love. That on that final day, every single one of us would be saved. Every one of us would enter into the glories of our Father. Every one of us would enter into the glories of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to give us unpleasant passages like this. Thank you that you love us enough in order to discipline us. Thank you that you love us enough in order to institute church discipline. Oh Lord, I pray that you would affect all of us in the ways that we need to be affected this morning by this passage. For your glory and your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.